Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. Our program today is about the future of the Internet and how we use it. The Federal Communications Commission has proposed rolling back net neutrality, the rules that ensure a free and open flow of information on the Internet, and the Title II classification of the Internet as a utility, meaning something that every person has a right to have. The communications policies that the FCC establishes affect us all, but they are complex and complicated. And the concept of net neutrality is hard to understand. Here is a quick explanation of net neutrality and the current efforts to rescind it from a website called Battle for the Net. What makes the internet great is the freedom it gives us. Whether it's staying in touch with friends, watching movies, or spending hours finding the perfect GIF. But right now, that freedom is at risk. The open internet is protected by something called net neutrality, which big companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T have been attacking for years. Net neutrality means that your cable company can't block you from visiting your favorite websites. They can't artificially slow sites down. And they can't make special deals to speed up some sites and slow down others. There are two sides to this fight. In support of net neutrality are the biggest web companies, small startups, and organizations who advocate for your right for free speech. Who's on the opposing team? The cable and phone companies. It's not complicated. Cable companies see getting rid of net neutrality as a way to squeeze more money out of internet users and businesses. Everyone else supports it because net neutrality means no government or corporation can control what you do online. The good news is, in 2015, the FCC passed strong protections for net neutrality. The bad news? Cable companies are already on the attack, and the new FCC is on their side and wants to gut the rules. That means the fight to protect the internet is far from over. So take action now and share this video. The more people who know what net neutrality means, the harder it will be for cable companies to break the internet. Battle for the Net is one of thousands of websites, online services, and public interest organizations that organized a day of action to save net neutrality on July 12th. The protest generated more than 2 million comments to the FCC, 5 million emails to Congress, and nearly 125,000 calls to congressional offices in support of Title II net neutrality. For many folks in rural parts of the country, broadband concerns are more basic than maintaining net neutrality. Although access to the Internet is increasingly recognized as vital to economic growth and community health and well-being, rural America continues to suffer from a digital divide where residents are the least able to access high-speed broadband. Roberto Gallardo, Associate Extension Professor at Mississippi State University Extension Service, looks at the impact of broadband on rural communities. I am a community economic development specialist, and I focus on the impact of broadband and community economic development. Obviously, that includes the digital divide. Um, uh, there is a digital divide between urban and rural, as it's well documented by Pew and others where um, a higher percentage of urban households subscribe to broadband, but also a higher percentage have access to uh, wired or fixed broadband um, at the speed currently defined as 25 megs down and three up. So not only are rural 
uh, communities lacking access, but they're also lagging in adoption uh, because the digital divide, as you know, is uh, consists of two main components. One is access and affordability, and the other one is adoption. Um, and so rural is lagging urban. Um, the gap is moving in the right direction, meaning it's closing, but I don't think it's closing quick enough, um, and I think it'll it'll plateau uh, moving forward. And and some people have suggested that rural people just aren't really that interested in uh, broadband and don't feel they need it. Does is there any um, reality to that? Do you think? Um, in in some way. There is, uh, just because adoption is highly impacted by certain socioeconomic characteristics, uh, including low income, less education, and older age. And all three of those are higher in rural America compared to urban. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, as more and more applications become known, and as the Internet becomes even more critical, I believe that rural rural communities are wanting uh, broadband. Uh, it's just that they cannot have access to it, and so they cannot subscribe to it, and so that comes back and affects adoption numbers as we are measuring it now. So in a way, um, uh, you know, the characteristics, socioeconomic characteristics of rural America are above average uh, that are also in, in certain characteristics, which in turn impact adoption of technology. I would not say that every rural community does not want to use broadband. They don't see the need for it. I just think that those that do may not have access or cannot afford it. And those that do have access to it, to a certain degree, may not subscribe either to higher speeds just because they they may not see the relevance uh, in doing that. Mm -hmm. And in your research, do you have a sense of um, how this access will affect the economic futures of these communities? Uh, uh, yes. Um, not having access to Internet is, is obviously critical uh, or, or not good because, you know, um, 100% of Fortune 500 companies only accept applications online your biggest retailers, your your you know your big box retailers that are somewhat common in rural America, only accept applications online. People cannot uh, learn new skills, um, and so I, we have not been able to kind of quantify that per se as to how it's going to impact. Uh, but it is it is kind of uh, known that um, from an empirical perspective, we're we're, we're lacking. We don't have that kind of study yet, but there are studies that show that communities that are better wired and have higher uh, adoption, you know, have more jobs and higher incomes. And that's controlling for urban and rural. That's controlling for uh, many other uh, uh, indicators. Um, And it's really uh, persuasive because we looked at the very similar counties seven years, uh, you know, as a starting point. And then we looked at those same counties, very similar counties, Seven or eight years later, the only difference was a broadband access and adoption, and, and the results were the, were practically the same, where they had more jobs, they had more income. Now, uh, critics make a, a valid argument where they say, well, uh, you're, you're assuming that broadband leads to that, while 
It can also be backwards, meaning higher income and more jobs may lead to a more broadband as well, broadband access, because there is a potential market for it. So the research there is not crystal clear, but it is hinting that there is an impact of broadband in rural communities in a positive way. Uh, we are currently working on a, on a uh, study right now that uh, shows uh, we're using a, a study from Ohio State University that found um, approximately the benefits of broadband per household is about $1,800 per year. Um, um, and if you take that number and then you calculate the number of households that do not have access to broadband 25-3, you get very interesting numbers in what it's been called a missed economic opportunity where these households are not getting that 1800 value because they don't have access to broadband. And um, the numbers are really, really shocking. Uh, I don't have the U.S. numbers right now, but we did it here in Mississippi. And even if 15, as in 1-5, 15% of households in Mississippi that currently do not have access to broadband did end up adopting broadband because it was available it would have an impact of about $310 million over 15 years. Wow. So, again, yeah, we're getting kind of closer to that. Uh, but, again, the research is not crystal clear, but we are seeing signs on the research that has been conducted that it is impacting from an economic perspective because, of course, we have other subjective um, things that, that need to be addressed as well that, that – you know, we need broadband. We are being left further, further behind. Certainly. We're we're in a county that is, um, I think, 0% at the 25 megabytes. So we know what that's like here. <laughs> um, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very difficult to get your work done, really. Yeah. And and, I, and then, like I've said in other outlets, um, Mimi, um, uh I believe the killer apps, you know, the killer app is a term that denotes something that you really, really need to have. Um, and I think the killer app for uh, broadband, many people thought it was social media about five years ago or 10 years ago. And that kind of helped, obviously, drive adoption and make people move it from their priority, from a low priority to a high priority. Uh, I think now we are really about to experience uh, two killer apps, which is telework and telehealth. Um, it, they're in their infancy right now, but they're moving rather quick. So when a household or a uh, somebody's well-being and job depend on broadband, I believe that they will make it a priority to, even if it's a little bit more expensive, that they would like to pay for it. And that would drive adoption, which hopefully would drive deployment. Great. Um, yes, and the telework jobs are something that um, is one of the only areas that of employment that has grown in our region because some of our communities do have fiber optic um, broadband, you know, or very very high speed, and so that that has been a place of growth here in Eastern Kentucky. Exactly, and and that's what I've been saying um, for rural communities, very rural communities. You know, chasing manufacturing facilities is, is just not going to happen. Um, number one, they're not hiring as many people as they used to. Um, and you, you're competing with, with a bunch of other countries and areas. 
Uh, I believe that telework is a very feasible strategy where you do not have to attract workers into your community. Rather, you could train the ones you have, give them connectivity, and then they can benefit. So it's kind of a inside-out growth approach rather than going and chasing these manufacturing facilities. But the mindset needs to change. Um, many policymakers are still after that old or traditional way of doing things. And so I, I, that's why I believe they, they, they don't see broadband as a tool for that. They still see it as a entertainment technology because that's how it started. And so we've got a lot of awareness to, to do. That was Roberto Gallardo. The FCC vote in 2015 to reclassify Internet as a Title II telecommunications service meant that it would be considered a public good, similar to a utility like phone or electric services that are made universally available. At the time of the vote, we spoke with Egel Casaparalta, coordinator of the Rural Broadband Working Group of the National Rural Assembly, about how this change could impact rural communities. And one of the most important provisions that we'll see under Title, under Title II broadband is that of universal service. So Title II has uh, provisions that require and expand service to everyone in the country. And so this is where we're beginning to see the conversation of how are we going to provide universal broadband service to uh, um, you know, all uh, residents of our nation. And that is under Section 254, so this is what opens that conversation for rural communities that have been neglected. As you know, there, this uh, has repercussions in terms of education access uh, and seeking jobs and launching businesses and just being able to be part of our democracy and our society. So the FCC has taken its a very important step at beginning that conversation of how do we connect the rest of the country. Now, these are things that are separate from net neutrality, but they begin the conversation that go beyond net neutrality, right? The net neutrality portion is the don't block me, don't throttle me, don't prioritize people who pay you more to give them better um, access to, uh, to networks. And so that's the net neutrality part. And as you mentioned earlier, for people who don't have service, uh, access to high-speed uh, high Internet, they're typically in rural, native communities, low-income communities. For them, they don't have access to the service yet. So when they finally get it, we want to make sure that the service is not broken, that their Internet is actually neutral, that they're able to take of the equalizing power of the Internet to launch their businesses and to... Um, to pursue their education, uh, and to innovate. So when the Internet reaches them, that's important. And beyond net neutrality, this opens up the conversation of how then do we uh, work to make sure that everyone gets access to the Internet. Mignon Clyburn was sworn in as an FCC commissioner in 2009 and was a strong advocate for reclassifying broadband as a Title II telecommunications service when the commission voted in 2015. She was interviewed by Devin Coldway at TechCrunch in May 2017 about the vote that the FCC was about to take on repealing Title II and net neutrality. Thanks for joining us, Commissioner. Thank you. 
Uh, and for those who may not be aware, uh, Commissioner Clyburn joined the FCC in 2009 and uh, has since then pursued issues uh, on behalf of communities that don't have the resources to hire lobbyists, basically. Absolutely. And of course, uh, helped craft and pass the open internet order, which has given us the net neutrality rules that we all enjoy. So uh, thank you very much for that. It's my pleasure to be here. Yep. And if that's not worth a little applause, I don't know what is. Uh, but on that note, <laughs> I'm going to ask the question that I think everybody here probably is wondering about. Is net neutrality doomed? Net neutrality is doomed if we're silent. Now, I don't know what Thursday is going to launch. I'll be the first to tell you. And I'll be the first to tell you that um, I know I will vote in the opposite way that the other two uh, will. But again, what we've seen is success. And what we know that if left unchecked, if there's not a referee on the field, that companies, your internet service providers, the big guys, will do with what they do best. They will answer to their shareholders, and they will ensure and double down when it comes to market share. But what we know and what I got a chance to speak to some of the, the persons on the showroom floor is that this is the most enabling platform, meaning broadband, the internet, of our time. And this should not be a regulatory free zone that we need to make sure that there's a referee, that there's somebody there calling the shots, saying, you know, monitoring, saying whether or not this is okay or that is not. And if we don't have that, then shame on us. So it is dead if we're silent, regardless of what the vote is. Um, I believe that if you continue to make the business case, which you've shown me here, that it's, it, 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 there is a definitely definite business case for an open internet, mm -hmm. And if we ensure that there are protections that consumers want and deserve, we're getting comments overwhelmingly saying that yeah. we want and deserve to be protected. But so those, I think that's important. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, but is there any, those comments are happening, but you know, do they have an effect? Should we, uh, should we keep commenting? Is that, are they being read? What can we do so that we don't you know, just scream internally and run out of the room, which is what I want to do. So the FCC um, has a process uh, that begins officially on Thursday, where we will vote on a notice of proposed rulemaking, and we will then open the door up to you to comment. So even though you might have weighed in already, and, and uh, according to the latest report, over a million people yeah. have weighed in, it's not officially a part of the record until that notice is published, is, is put forth, and that it is that we affirm that it's open for you to do so. Yeah, and that's so you've got to weigh week. in. That right. is happening. Thursday is the, the vote for the notice of proposed rulemaking, and then you will have an opportunity uh, a few days later when it, you know once it is um, all of the edits have been made um, and, and the like, that you have an opportunity to weigh in, and that is when it counts, or that's when it matters. Now again, I don't know what the vote's going to be in the months that follow, the final vote on an mm -hmm. order, but that is where it matters because the only way to defend something is to weigh in. Mm -hmm. The reason why I love this process that we have at the FCC and in our nation is it's interactive. We have already heard from um, you know, scientists um, and, and those who do those researchers that have basically said thus far, even looking through and scraping through the duplicates, over 96% of those who weighed in say we are for an open 
platform and open internet, we are pro-net neutrality. And so I think collaboratively, because again, this is not a siloed ecosystem, it's mm -hmm. very interactive. Yeah. I believe we have the opportunity uh, you know, for everybody to not only weigh in, but for us to get legitimate numbers and a legitimate feel for what, uh, uh, what the country is thinking. And that's yeah. important. Not three to five people um, you know, at the, the FCC. While significant, the importance is what you think and what you feel, and you've got to weigh in when the comment cycle opens. Right, and I'm sure we all will. Um, and I want to I go back in time a little bit. Uh, you helped propose and vote in the order in 2015, or 2014 and 2015. Uh, and it's been characterized recently as the FCC was dragged, kicking and screaming into this regulatory framework that, of course, they've characterized as, as depression era, mon monopolizing rules or whatever. Uh, so does that, does that tally with your recollection of the process, or was it a little different? In your I've memory? been around the FCC for nearly eight years, and I didn't feel like I was dragged, pushed, or pulled. I was given a mandate by the American people who said, we believe in this most enabling platform, but we know that protections are, are important, mm -hmm. uh, that we know that if left unchecked, there is an incentive for a large internet service provider to favor uh, you know, their associates. Yes. Um, and, and we don't think that that should be the case. Uh, we know uh, there, we have seen large and small providers uh, disadvantage. Um, some of you in, in this room or some of you, you know, that are similar in this room, we don't think that should be placed, the, the case. We think that you should lead, use, be able to use a device of your choice and it's not harmful to the market. And as long as we are all abiding by the rules of law, that this should be an interactive participatory uh, process. And we don't think uh, that anyone should be favored. Uh, we don't think um, uh, that um, you know, a company who is responsible for the on-off ramps of the most, you know, to me, in my lifeline, lifetime, the most significant enabling platform that I have ever seen that's bridging divides, that's lowering barriers to entry. We don't think one, two, or three providers should dictate um, what, uh, uh, what your experience should be. And we do not think this should be a regulatory free zone, having those very same companies come up with voluntary standards, voluntary standards. that we wow. know that are, are, will only be voluntary in the boardrooms yeah. and, and, and yeah. um, in, their, uh, in their offices. Uh, and yeah, thank you. That was FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn at TechCrunch in May. The current FCC public comment period that she speaks about will close after July 17th. Kentucky News Connect reports on the effect the FCC's proposed changes could have on rural people and places. After winning the battle for open internet rules two years ago, net neutrality advocates are hoping a wave of public comments can help them keep the rules in place. Nearly 4 million public comments helped usher in net neutrality in 2015, guaranteeing consumers equal access to the Internet. Kentuckian Marty Newell, who coordinates a national coalition of rural broadband advocates, says the FCC's move would repeal those protections. Everybody deserves a fair shake on the Internet. Big Internet service providers ought not to be able to pick winners and losers. They ought not to be able to block content, lawful content. ISP giants such as Comcast and Verizon have claimed they will not block content. 
FCC Chairman Ajit Pai says the regulations shackle the cable and telecom industries. Newell counters, saying net neutrality has not slowed down investment or innovation. The FCC is currently in its public comment period before finalizing its decision on loosening the rules. Newell, who leads the Rural Broadband Policy Group, says the nation's history in treating telephone service as a utility illustrates the importance of regulating common carriers, especially in underserved rural areas where it can help small businesses compete. Content being generated in rural America is not going to be the big guys that can afford to buy their way into a faster Internet. Amazon, Vimeo, and Netflix are among the tech companies that support net neutrality. I'm Greg Stottlemyer reporting for Public News Service. Roberto Gallardo expressed his thoughts about how reclassifying Internet services could affect rural areas. I have no idea what the net neutrality is going to end up looking like, so I'm going to, I'm going to frame the, this discussion based on the worst-case scenario, which is those speed lanes that they've been talking about, where they will be able to offer faster internet to those who can pay for it. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off from that assumption. I don't know. It may end up being not that that way. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but definitely uh, net neutrality is, is critical. Um, if we assume this worst-case scenario, uh, rural communities will be hit uh, harder because on top of maybe – uh, a small business owner in rural America cannot afford to pay for those fast lanes for its content to be loaded quicker compared to the big companies. That's a disadvantage right there. But on top of that, again, and I don't know what the technicality of net neutrality is going to look like, but on top of that, we don't have as many providers that tend to be smaller regional providers. What if they, on top of that, cannot pay the backbone or the bigger providers to give them access to these faster lanes. So not only will the businesses suffer potentially, but also the carriers. And so on top of not having competition, um, you may be paying for a service that speed-wise may be decent, but in reality, your provider does not have access to those faster lanes. Um, and so uh, it's, it's not good. I think Net neutrality in this worst-case scenario, again, I don't know how it's going to end up looking. Uh, it, it, it can very easily undermine the potential that the technology has to leverage the playing field between urban and rural and just providing other outlets of development for rural communities wherein the old industrial age outlets are just shut down for a while. They've been like that for a while. So net neutrality can easily undermine all of this. Another thing is if they end up uh, classifying broadband as an entertainment, that will not help in framing the discussion that we just had of, look, it's not entertainment. It is critical infrastructure for the 21st century. Uh, But again, I have not read the proposal in detail. I don't know when they vote and when they get feedback what they're going to end up doing. But in the worst case scenario, I believe that it will have a double impact on rural, number one, Small businesses in rural America may not be able to pay for these hypothetical fast lanes, and the car- the carriers or the access or the competition uh, may not be able to uh, pay uh, these backbone companies to give them access to these fast lanes. So uh, I think it's it's a very um, uh, what's 
the word I'm looking for. It's a very complicated situation for rural if net neutrality actually does not hold. Well, I know one of our hopes is people in, in rural areas when the FCC did change the classification of, of Internet services to more like a utility, it really, um, many of us led us to hope and believe that um, like phone service, there would be kind of a basic um, understanding or or even legal legality that people in this country do have a right to broadband service, just as we had decided that people do have a right to phone service and to electric um, electricity and that kind of thing. And and so we were very hopeful that with that established, um, you know, that the government or whatever it would take could kind of intervene or provide stimulus or do what was needed to do to make sure that everybody in every place in this country had could have access to the Internet. And um, to me, that's a real fear in going backwards, that we would lose that. And, you know, Lord knows competition is not good right now, and that's part of the problem, such a lack of competition competition. So if it got worse, heaven forbid, you know, we we have providers that just say, I'm not going to come. There are not enough people there. I'm not going to come out there. And um, people are left with nothing. Right. Yeah. Viewing it as a right, I, I agree. I think it is a critical infrastructure that may have started with a different objective, but it has quickly become uh, necessary. I mean, it's not a it's not a want, it's a need for sure. Um, uh, and net neutrality would have definitely helped in, in going that way. And I agree, if it if it gets rolled back, uh, then it'll be harder to frame the message that way just because it's not uh, coded as a utility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, we, we need to be attentive of what's happening in the policy arena, um, but I, I believe it, it's uh, net neutrality needs to uh, continue, uh, perhaps tweak it here or there, but not roll it back. And again, I don't know exactly what they're planning to do, if they're going to roll it back completely. And like I said earlier, I started this uh, response assuming that we were going to end up with the worst case scenario. Christopher Mitchell is Director of Community Broadband Networks at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and an international expert on municipal and community broadband networks. He also is concerned about the proposed changes. When it comes to net neutrality and uh, Title II classification in particular, um, you know, I think there's two things that come to mind immediately. One is a quote from a friend, um, Ed Yal um, Casaparalta, who was working for National um, Rural Assembly, I think, at the time. And she was saying, you know, hey, don't break the Internet just when rural America is finally getting it. Uh, that's something that I, that I always think about, is that we don't want to um, devalue this incredible resource just at the time when, when many Americans are getting their first access to it for real. Um, but the second thing that I, that I think about is my concern that uh, allowing big companies to make the rules, to better decide uh, how we use our connections, um, that is basically an opportunity for them to figure out how they can make more money without investing any more dollars in networks, which is the exact opposite of what we want. And so I strongly support Title II remaining the same to make sure that these big corporations uh, have to focus 
focus on bringing Internet access to more people and providing better service if they want to make more money. I think it's really concerning if, if they think they can make more money by just monkeying around with the services that they've already deployed. One of the criticisms from telecommunications corporations and some rural broadband providers have of the current net neutrality rules is that they have stifled investment in rural broadband and innovation. We asked Gallardo whether he has seen a slowdown. Um, uh, I've read about it. It's Honestly, it's not my area. I read a couple studies that came out that showed that actually competition did not grind to a halt after the regulations of net neutrality were, or the renaming it, reclassifying it happened two years ago. Um, that's one of the arguments you hear from people that want to, quote-unquote, deregulate it, is that it will spur competition, which you've noted there is no competition to begin with, so it would not benefit rural communities. But on the other hand, there are some studies that I came across uh, quickly read. Again, it's not my area, but I, that apparently it did not, um, um, you know, affect in investment and competition. Uh, the current um, net, net neutrality context. The Public News Service also reported on the question of whether these Title II regulations have discouraged business investment. As the FCC takes steps to reverse net neutrality, a term for a free and open Internet, researchers say a key assumption for the move does not hold water. In his argument to revisit the Obama-era rule, current FCC Chairman Ajit Pai cited a paper published in an academic journal that claimed the agency had failed to consider the economic impacts on industry. Jefferson Pooley, co-author of a new study published in the same International Journal for Communication, says Pai's position is based on a paper riddled with factual errors and unsubstantiated claims. We showed that this core claim was incorrect, that in fact, economists had been perhaps more active in coming up with the net neutrality rules than ever before. Pooley's team also found that the article cited by Pi was paid for by Cal Innovates, a PR group that specializes in promoting policy for AT&T, an internet service provider that Pooley says could benefit if open internet rules are reversed. Proponents of rolling back net neutrality say regulating ISPs as a utility hampers innovation and investment. Pooley believes the failure to disclose industry funding amounts to information laundering, making it possible for the FCC director to cite an academic publication without any trace of AT&T's fingerprints. He says it's important for the public and public officials to know whose interests are behind research. We would probably dismiss a claim that AT&T made directly against net neutrality since they stand to gain financially. So instead of making the argument directly, they funded academics who published an article in an academic journal. Pooley adds that Cal Innovates threatened legal action against the journal and the University of Southern California, its host, unless material involving the firm was removed. The FCC is accepting public comments on its plan, called Restoring Internet Freedom, through July 17th at www.fcc.gov. For Public News Service, I'm Eric Galatis. Roberto Gallardo says that before regulators change policies, they need to get out of Washington and travel the country in order to understand how the digital divide affects residents in so many rural communities. We need to make sure that those uh, making the decision understand and are not quote-unquote quote unquote, urban biased. I do applaud that uh, Commissioner Pai has been uh, uh, you know, traveling to, to rural communities. And, 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 you know, that's good. 
that's good that he's he's seeing another perspective. Let's see if that influences his his uh, current standing on on what he's proposing. Again, I have not read any of that in detail, um, but I do applaud the fact that he is actually going out there and listening firsthand, which is what you and I encounter, Mimi, every day, those of us that are in the trenches. So I do applaud that. I hope that has some kind of effect on whatever it is they're drafting or proposing. We have a lot of work to do. Uh, It is a critical and important thing, this digital inclusion or digital divide or digital continuum um, as, as it can be called, I think it's important, um, and, and hopefully we can, we can continue to work together to uh, get rural communities, you know, aware of what this technology can, can help them achieve, uh, also provide them with some know-how um, and obviously some access. That was Roberto Gallardo. Mignon Clyburn is finishing her term as a Democrat appointee to the FCC, but support for net neutrality is not a partisan issue. A recent nationwide poll by Civis Analytics found that a strong majority of Americans, 77 percent, support net neutrality principles and oppose efforts to repeal the FCC's 2015 open Internet rules. The poll also found a broadly shared belief across party lines that the Internet is essential in the 21st century and that government has a vital role to play in expanding Internet access, including by providing subsidies to help low-income Americans afford access. Commissioner Clyborne says that she will continue to represent those who need a voice in communications policies and encourages everyone to make their voices heard. You are coming to the end of your term as a commissioner. Uh, What is that? I mean, first of all, we need you. Where are you going? Why are you leaving? So regardless of what my title is, I'm not going far. I commit to you. You talk about something and being a part of my DNA. I have, I'm spitting. You know, I am really and I don't know how I'm going to be able to eat and, 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 and uh, provide for myself and do this, but I would not be able to close my eyes when it's time for me to go to glory if I didn't do everything that I could to close these gaps, to address these issues that will not be solved unless there's a voice out there. And that's why to your first question is so important. You cannot afford to be silent no matter what the vote is, no matter what the order says, because there's always a court And the best court is the court of public opinion that if you weigh in and say this is bad business, this is, you know, bad policy, um, before you transition, we will have an open, robust process with the balance needed to make regulatory sense. I promise you, if I can't promise you anything, can't promise you on Thursday, can't promise you a vote, but I can promise you before it all ends, we're going to have an open, participatory, inclusive, fair, internet, open internet, regulatory platform that you will be proud of. I promise you that. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Uh, so what's next for you, though? Ah. Uh, I mean, are yeah, you going to... Yeah, I try to do, avoid, you know, kind of... <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah, try. I keep, I keep telling people I'm a... We P- don't do that here. I, I'm a PK. I'm a politician's kid. Uh-huh. So we have a tendency to weave, tendency to weave and rob. We've, we've, ex- we've experienced that before. <laughs> on, on stage today, in fact. I've seen on it. stage today. So... 
I'm going to be speaking for those women and girls who have few options. I'm going to be uh, about research and, and, um, and, and hopefully crafting policy, being an influencer in terms of crafting policy, and hopefully making a, a business model that will look at those rural communities where the infrastructure does not organically flow. Mm -hmm. Because again, this is the infrastructure of now. It is like what, when we were talking 20 and 30 years about clean potable water. Businesses are not going to go to places where there is not the technological mm -hmm. infrastructure to flow. And that keeps poor communities and disadvantaged, uh, you know, and, and, um, and rural communities at a disadvantage. I want to be and will continue to be about bridging those divides. And that is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. Good. And uh, are you, so are you done with the official governmental capacity or? Well, you know, you have to, there, there's a process here. <laughs> and, um, and some of it I don't have um, too much, uh, um, you know, uh, voice in. But I promise you this, however long I am going to, to, however long I will be there, I will continue to be your voice, speaking up for open platforms, speaking up for parity, speaking up for affordability, because all of those self things help the ecosystem. If you build it and I can't afford to come, then both of us are frustrated. <laughs> and so that is what um, I think, you, that's the kind of regulator I believe you want. Am I right? You want a regulator that speaks for, looks at the entire ecosystem and says if it's not affordable, it's not accessible, and if it's not, uh, if it's not open, and you're disadvantaged because a company is basically calling the balls and calling the strikes, then, uh, then we, um, we have not done right by you. And uh, when, you, when you take off, do you know who's going to take your place? Got any ideas? I have no idea, but if anybody has any oh, suggestions, <laughs> mm. uh, <laughs> there's probably a process for that. I know too. there's a process for that, but you want someone to you want a commission that is reflective of the American experience, that is diverse, um, that is engaged. You do not want five people up there singing from the same hymnal. I'm from the South, so we do a lot of biblical and and hymnal references. And so you want um, people that reflect your point of view because when you have that type of inclusion and diversity, you get better policy because all of us need a check and balances, balance on occasion. Those of you in business, if you have any, everybody that thinks the way you do, you won't be in business for long. You have to have people in there that are, will be disruptive internally in order for you to uh, build a better product. And I think that same approach needs to be, uh, needs to be by way of, in terms of your regulator, regulatory authority, your mm -hmm. body. You need regulators that are internally disruptive, that are taking some of the best qualities and characteristics that we see on the showroom floor and bring that um, to, into regulation. You need that and we need that. Absolutely. Uh, and is there anywhere, we're pretty much out of time here, but uh, if you'd like to, are there any resources that people can keep up with what you're doing, what the FCC is doing, and how to, uh, how to keep informed on this process? Number one, you need to weigh in if you care about an, a free and open internet. Please follow me through, I, I'm, I'm just on Twitter, I'm kind of old school, so just on Twitter, but please, you know, follow what we do. It is definitely integrally connected to what you do. You cannot afford to be a passive bystander when it comes to one of the most significant regulatory agencies in the world. And so if you don't interact, if you're not engaged, then shame on you because you will have others dictating what you do. You will be less than successful. And so you have got to keep up with what we do each and every day. And you have to keep an eye on this open internet and do not get discouraged. Well. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming.
Commissioner Clyburn. Thank you. We end our program with a collage of comments on net neutrality from people throughout the country in a story produced by Credo Action. Dear FCC. My name is Ashley Williams and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Lynn Ketchum. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, my name is Alejandro and I live in the Fresno Valley. I'm an archaeologist. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm a Navy veteran and a military spouse. My husband and I have served this country to preserve American freedoms. Net neutrality is one of those freedoms. My students and I use the internet on a daily basis. I use the internet for so much of my business, with my clients, with my family. I take my Spanish lessons so that I can speak to my Spanish-speaking clients. Inquiry-based learning, collaboration, expanding our classroom beyond the walls to video chat with experts in the field. I think getting rid of net neutrality will definitely harm small businesses. It will lead to more concentration of economic power. It's going to hurt uh, startups and innovation. Our internet is now our libraries for our children. Net neutrality is a racial justice issue. I support net neutrality as one of those basic things that all Americans should have ac access to. In order to preserve and expand a free and democratic society. So the fight for net neutrality is a fight about our free speech, about our right to organize, and about making sure our communities have what they need. The net's existence comes from all of us who create it and use it every day. I believe that net neutrality should be maintained under Title II. It is a public utility which all people need. I'm in support of Title II classification of the internet because it is a necessity now. We live in the information age. I hope every single person will get engaged, will write to their member of Congress, will comment at the FCC, and will join us in standing up for net neutrality so that the internet can be accessible to every American. Keep our internet under Title II where it belongs. You can find more information and add your comment on net neutrality and the FCC's plan at dearfcc.org or battleforthenet.com. The first comment period will close on midnight, July 17th. This is Mimi Pickering with Mountain Talk on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. For more information, visit www.wmmt.org. Thanks for listening.